I just wanted to acknowledge that the University of Idaho occupies lands whose original rightful stewards include the Nez Perce and Palouse Indigenous Nations. Furthermore, I conducted much of this research in the homelands of the Great Sioux Nations, Cheyenne, Shoshone, Bannock, Salish Kootenai, including whose territory is located within, and of course, the Abzalaga or Crow Nation. The unlawful removal and continued displacement of these and other nations enables the rest of us to live and work here. So really quickly, my positionality, I'm a fourth, fifth, slash fifth generation um, settlers in the state of Montana, including um, ranchers in the Boulder Valley in the 1800s. I completed my dissertation on disease animals and borders in the Montana Yellowstone borderlands um, this summer, actually. Today, really quickly, I'm going to talk about a short-lived program on the Crow Reservation during the 1930s. This program, led by Superintendent Robert Yellowtail, who was one of the first indigenous superintendents ever and the first Crow superintendent of the reservation, uh, I'm going to talk about a program that he started um, which sought to restore decimated horse herds after decades of reduction efforts uh, at the behest of local ranchers and the Bureau of Indian Affairs employees. Yellowtail's program, just a spoiler alert, resulted in hybrid horses being brought to the reservation as breeding stock for tribal members. But by the 1940s, the program he had started had essentially dropped out of view and it ended. So what I'm going to do with this presentation quickly is to cover some of the background of the uh, horse herd reduction. So in other words, why was a horse herd um, restoration program necessary? Um, the other thing I'm going to cover is the program right quickly itself, talk about the horses because that's why I got into it, <laughs> and then talk about the end of it really quickly. Um, really quickly though, I do need to thank some folks who've helped me on this project, including Robert Yellowfield's daughter, Timothy McCleary, Brianna Theobald, Steve Fountain, Cody White, as well as the patient staff at Montana, the magazine of Western History, and as well my patient and long-suffering language teachers from the Pro Summer Language Institutes, including Rowan Hill and Velma Peace. Um, so I can't cover the entirety of Crow history um, with horses. It's a very long one. Um, the preeminent uh, historian, Crow historian Joseph Medicine Crow, dates the beginning of the relationship between Crow and their horses um, to the mid-1700s. Once Horses and crow, though, crow people began to um, interact and began to live together. They, the crows were very quick to convert equine power into cultural, social, and material power as well. Um, crow wealth and prestige very quickly became tied to their horses and their horse herds. Um, and these horses became critical players in hunting, trading, and raiding activities as well as playing integral roles in marriages, adoptions, criminal law, family structure, and extra-tribal relationships. Um, one, and this is a fairly well-known quote, but I think one that's worth um, talking about very quickly because it demonstrates how intertwined crow culture and horse, crow culture and life were with horses by the 19th century. So one 19th century crow um, leader, Arapush, um, asked a rhetorical question what is a country without horses? And then he answered his own question with this explanation. Quote, in the autumn, when your horses are fat and strong from the mountain pastures, you can go down into the plains and help the buffalo or trap beaver on the streams. 
And when winter comes on, you can take shelter in the woody bottoms along the rivers. There you will find buffalo meat for yourselves and cottonwood bark for your horses. Or you may winter in the Wind River Valley, where there is salt weed in abundance. And so what these remarks show is the interdependence between the land, the crow people, and horses by marking seasonal environmental changes through coarse grazing needs. In other words, for the crows, the land, and their horses, their culture were and are interwoven together. Once crows, however, were um, sort of uh, confined and reduced onto the confined to the reservations on a reduced reservation in the 19th century, though, one would think that perhaps horses would lose in, uh, importance. In fact, it was the exact opposite. Um, Horses remain central to um, Abdullah's economy and social relationships um, in the beginning and the middle of the reservation period. Many Crow people made money by selling horses. Um, and just Medicine Crow states that every Crow man, quote, aspired to own many horses until the Depression years of the 1930s a man would sell his extra horses to horse buyers as a source of family income. To be a crow rancher in those days was to raise horses rather than cattle. Yet, Bureau of Indian Affairs employees and other local ranchers took great issue with that because what that would often mean is that crow horse herds were very large. And so towards the, uh, towards the end of the 1910s, the range on the Crow Reservation was, as Medicine Tail described it, teeming with horses. And if you're a crow rancher and you're selling horses as a source of income, that may, that may not necessarily be a bad thing. If you, however, are a white grazing leaseholder, that becomes a bit more of a problem. To back up really quickly, though, um, in 1920, you have the Crow Act. And the Crow Act was a... Um, Act passed by Congress uh, to address issues, um, including opening up the reservation to white grazing or white leasing of grazing. Um, and the Crow Act divided the reservation into individually owned tracts, um, which were then parceled out by the Interior Department to an individual tribal members. And the act didn't function completely like other allotment acts on other reservations to completely re um, remove indigenous ownership of the land. Um, it did protect crow land in some form or fashion, but it also limited tribal earnings by forcing crows to lease their lands to white ranchers and farmers. Um, historian Timothy McCleary, who teaches at Little Bighorn College, describes the Crow Act as its intent, quote, was to make the Crow become farmers and to destroy tribal life by treating each family as a separate economic unit. But the effect was a dispersing of the concentrations of the Crow population and opening land for lease, like I said, to white ranchers and farmers. Grazing leases were a mixed bag. This ensured some steady income to tribal members, but also required them to relinquish control of the grazing uh, leases to uh, leaseholders. Um, and so what happens with these leaseholders is the horse herds that were being ranched um, were all of a sudden now essentially trespassing. And so in 1919 and 1920, 
Um, it's difficult. There was a new superintendent who was brought off of the Crow Reservation, um, who is somewhat, how shall I say this, aptly named. His name is Ashbury, and I always mispronounce that. Um, he was literally brought onto the reservation in order to stamp out Crow culture and Crow economic pathways. So one of the things that he did, um, that didn't really make it into my article, but one of the things he did was outlaw all Crow religion, try to restructure completely Crow families, um, amongst other fairly obviously uh, racist, classist, sexist uh, regulations. But one of the things that he also attacked or tried to get a, do away with were these crow herds, which by the 1920s, early 1920s, were probably around 40,000 on the reservation's 2 million acres. And so when Ash, Ashbury shows up, he, um, along with non-crow leaseholders, including the Snyder Sheep Company, for example, um, helped to institute a reduction program that offered bounties on wild horses. The problem, though, is how do you want to quantify a wild horse? And most often, they often would use branding systems as a way to quantify wild horses, but for many crow people and many crow families, they wouldn't brand their horses. And I can get more into that at a later time. It was a very complex social and economic sort of structure. Uh, but it was really common for non-wild horses to be quantified as wild horses. And, for, and so between 1919 and about 1932, give or take, um, uh, the BIA employees and white leaseholders would offer bounties of between 2 to $4 for a pair of ears, of horse ears. And then they would also um, engage in roundups that they would then ship the horses out, likely to some cannery or some slaughterhouse back east. I haven't been able to trace exactly where those horses were going, but that would be my educated guess. Um, so by 1930, 1932, tens of thousands of crow horses were gone, either through direct killing or through shipments. And so that number I quoted earlier of perhaps 40,000, um, estimates range, but there was probably less than 1,000 to 2,000 horses left by 1932. Um, and, so, and so by 1934, many of the Crow families who relied on horses for their economic wealth were had, had experienced a massive loss um, of economic and then as well cultural um, ally, if you will, uh, from the reservation. Um, and then in 1934, Robert Yellowtail was appointed superintendent of the reservation by John Collier. And like I said earlier, Robert Yellowtail was the first Crow superintendent. Um, he was technically appointed into a federal position uh, but then he also asked him and received uh, votes um, for, from the tribe to sort of confirm his position. Um, once he was appointed in 1934, which in this picture here, he is the man on the left here. Um, and then he is the man in the big uh, fur coat in the middle picture there. Um, he's sort of one of his trademarks. 
Um, but by 1934, when he was appointed, he immediately began implementing programs um, to recover economic and cultural and social um, wealth and vibrancy on the reservation. And one of those areas that he concentrated on, likely because he was a huge horseman himself and a huge horse racer himself, was um, on horse fur restorations. Uh, but he wanted to make sure that the horses that he was using to restore the herds were high-end or high-bred horses. In other words, they were papered. Uh, many, if not all, of the horses on the reservation who had been uh, victims, if you will, of the uh, horse herd reduction program were what um, often would be called scrub or non-papered horses. So in other words, they were um, they didn't come with breeding papers, couldn't trace their lineage. Um, and so when Yellowtail sought to restore the horse herd programs, he really wanted to use really expensive, high-bred, important horses. Um, and so one of the things that he used in order to bring the horses onto the reservation was um, loan programs from the Indian New Deal, which was part of a project passed by um, Indian Commissioner of Affairs, John Collier, and it essentially loaned uh, money to the Crow tribe to buy some really high-end horses. Yellowtail, though, also in his capacity as a federal employee, uh, sought to acquire horses on loan from other federal agencies. And so by 1936, he's actually, he's very successful in this. Using some of the loan money, he's able to purchase uh, draft horses from Canada, including one, um, including one stallion who I have yet to identify positively a photo of, but he was this massive Shire stallion that weighed over 2,000 pounds. He's very um, sort of paper horse, he's kind of, uh, uh, um, <laughs> uh, big horse, literally. Um, but then also, Yellowtail was able to acquire some uh, some uh, draft horses, um, uh, including Percherons um, and other Shire, both mares and stallions, from Canada and Montana. But then he was also able to acquire, on loan from the Forest Service, uh, two Morgan stallions to use as breeding stock. Um, and the two stallions, one of whom he named Roosevelt after the president. <laughs> um, and the stallions, the Morgan stallions, he, want, he brought in because he wanted to use them to breed cow horses. Uh, Morgans, for those of you who don't know, tend to be a little bit smaller, more compact, tough little trail horses. And so Yellowtail wanted to crossbreed the Morgans with um, other cow horses or even thoroughbreds to see if he could get a really tough trail cow horse, essentially. The draft horses he wanted to use for agriculture, largely. Um, but he also was concentrating more on, as well, not just on the economic portion in terms of like thinking about cow, you know, cattle ranching or in terms of um, literal horsepower for agriculture. He was also thinking about horses on the reservation as cultural power as well. And so one of the horses that he was able to bring out to the reservation on loan from the uh, Calvary, part of the US Reno system uh, in Colorado, 
was a former Kentucky Derby second place winner. And so he brought a really sort of very famous uh, thoroughbred onto the reservation, albeit very old. Um, and so you can see in these photos here, here are some of the registered mares and foals. Um, this is a photo in, on the left, of the lower left here, this is a photo of in winter delivery. Um, these, I believe, were a part of the Canadian stock, but I could be wrong. And then this is obviously in the summer. Just like that happening. <laughs> um, here up on the right here, and those are some of the registered mares and foals. Um, you can see here a photograph of Yellowtail riding Roosevelt, the, the Morgan's, one of the Morgan stallions. Um, and then, as well, here's some pictures of some of the draft animals that he was able to bring in in 1938. So he was able to bring some of these high-end paper horses for about three to four years um, and sort of keep them at Crow Agency and um, as breeding stock uh, for Crow tribal members. Once he acquired these horses, Yellowtail was really effective at advertising their prestige and at sort of beginning to, not even beginning, but sort of amplifying and building on Crow relationship and Crow uh, history of having this reputation of only buying horses and breeding fine horses and having very sort of interconnected and interwoven um, social portions of that. And Yellowtail really built on that, particularly through when he sort of revived Crow Fair as well. And so in the summer of 1937 and 1938, um, he rode some of these horses in Crow Fair. They were paraded in Crow Fair. Um, they were brought around at Crow Fair. Um, and, and, and he also, uh, contacted journalists and had magazine spreads and it's in newspapers and he, he worked really hard to make sure that everyone in many ways around the nation but particularly around Montana and Wyoming knew that there were now fine horses, very fine horses, on the Crow Reservation. Uh, this is a photo here of Yellowtail. Um, this I believe is a, the, the paint that he's writing I believe is a personal horse. I don't think it's one of the uh, one of the uh, Horses that were bought or loaned to the tribe. Um, that's after after Tim McCoy <laughs> at the Crow Fair in the late 1930s. Um, but it was part of a greater revitalization. Like I said earlier, the horse restoration program was part of a greater revitalization program that Yellowtail was undertaking on the reservation as a whole. The photo of the Crow Fair. Um, his goal essentially was to convert both Crow Fair but then also a reputation around um, the horses into a contemporary culture that was both um, revitalization of Crow economy and Crow culture and Crow social structures as well. Um, however, the, by 1938, so only a few short years later, Government agent, other government agencies and other government employees 
sort of began to question why do you need to bring in these high-end horses? And if within a historical record, you begin, I can, one can begin to see Yellowtail having to explain himself over and over and over again why having high-bred, high-end horses was more important than having scrub horses. And he usually came back to, well, we can sell them more at market. You know, they all, you know, we can then take these bred horses and create really good crossbreed, crossbred horses for economic reasons. This, and he would often tout, as, or he would often cite as well, you know, this is also part of our cultural revitalization, social revitalization, which other government employees did not really understand. <laughs> or at least accept as a legitimate um, reason for bringing these really expensive horses. So for example, the um, thoroughbred that I mentioned, his name was Beth Mosey, um, an army captain in Colorado who really upset with um, Yellowtail because he perceived that Yellowtail wasn't treating the horse right. And Yellowtail writes back with this very angry letter of like, no, it's the horse's problem, he's very old. Of course, he's going to have shaggy hair. It's the winter in Montana. Have you ever been here? Um, and then the army captain writes back and repossesses that Mosey the next year in 1938. Um, that doesn't seem to fully dissuade Yellowtail from trying to continue the program. He tries to um, trade Roosevelt and the other Morgan Stallion for uh, what would go on to be foundational American quarter horse stallions. Um, and the government employees at the Forest Service said, no, we're not going to do that. Why are you trading for some random horse in the, out of the middle of Texas? Um, which in my mind is really interesting because they went on to be some of the foundation of, so if anyone here knows Quarter Horse Foundation lines, it's the steel dust line. Um, and in many ways, like, had the Forest Service accepted that, they might have actually made a lot more money. <laughs> um, but. By, by 1940, however, he, Yellowtail began to scale back his efforts. And so by 1938 and 1940, he has not been able to buy any new papered horses. Um, and by 1940, he stopped completely. Um, and part of the reason why was pushed back from the other government employees. Part of it, I think, as well, was frustration on his own part. Um, based on some of this pushback and based on some of the changing economic, larger United States economic um, factors as well. So in 1940, Yellowtail wrote to a Wyoming rancher that he says, quote, I am not interested in raising horses anymore, as I fully realize that they have been replaced by the highly mechanized barn equipment. He thought that the, quote, horse business in the U.S. is shocked. Yellowtail was correct to some degree, but the horse, poor horse market in the United States could not decimate the cultural meaning and the value of horses for the coronation. One of the, by, one of the things that you can see with the horse restoration program that he was able to get even if just for a few years is the horse herd members explode and begin to explode from 1936 onward, and they grow. And they didn't quite reach 40,000, <laughs> um, but they grew fairly exponentially, and families began to have larger herds again. 
by rebuilding crow herds, Yellowtail is ensuring that the continuing participation of horses in crow heritage and culture, as well as some economic revitalization through agricultural endeavors such as ranching. Additionally, Yellowtail's active rebuilding the tribe's horse herds flew in the face of the previously vicious horse herd reduction programs. The horse rebuilding efforts and ideas worked as a form of political expression to assert crow identity, sovereignty, and cultural power predicated on a close equine human relationship. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to trace the exact lives of the horses after 1940. They disappear from the historical written record. Part of it probably is due to the fact that Yellowtail had a house fire um, and some tribal records, including some of these horse records, disappeared um, as a result of that fire. Um, you know, uh, but their legacy, in many ways, lives on in terms of restoring and revitalizing horse herds as a whole, both as a cultural and then as a actual lived experience on on the Crow Reservation. The I can find. Um, for years afterwards, the program was mentioned in local and national papers. It, it, it stuck around in, people, in people's minds and in, in, in uh, publications. Joseph Medicine Crow described the success of the program as that the horses who, that Yellow Crow was able to acquire were pretty beyond their names, so beyond just simply the, their names. Um, for these horses, quote, much of their historical impact will stay hidden. They're, but, end quote, but their vexing absence um, doesn't necessarily indicate that, like I said earlier, that the program was in vain. To Yellowtail and other tribal members, these pedigreed horses were an opportunity to rebuild, rebuild uh, like I said, the Crow Horse Program or the Crow Horse Herds on the reservation. And to close, Medicine Crow said that soon horses, once the that the um, once the horses were introduced into the breeding programs on the reservation, he said, "quote Soon horses started coming back all over the country. You know, families started raising horses again. Crow culture had come back again." Thank you.